this isn't about just opening everything up for the better and making it great and erasing limits. That's not where it's going. It's about finding a fair middle. Welcome, everybody, to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in betting and beer and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Landis, back for week two, live streaming on Twitter and YouTube. Honored to be here with the man of the hour. In fact, really the man of the last week, if we look at the sports betting industry, Adam Chernoff. Welcome back to Props and Hops. Is this number three? Am, do I, am I counting correctly? Is this episode three with me? I think those were your first remarks last time around, which would probably make this round four. Round four. I like it. It's uh, good to be a, I don't know when recurring guest status is applied, but maybe we're getting close. Yeah, I think we're there. And I'm happy to be doing this right now because for the unacquainted, you wrote an article published June 1st on covers.com titled, Where's the Line? Sports Betting Regulators Need to Act Now to Protect the Player. And for reference, I'll drop a link to that article in the show notes. And I know that you've got a pinned tweet on your Twitter handle at Adam Chernoff. I think it's a must read. I also think your recent appearance with Mitch and Polly last Friday, June 3rd, would be a must listen for this audience. So I'll look to advance rather than repeat the conversation and the article where possible. But Adam, to kick things off for listeners learning about this for the first time or could use maybe a bit of a refresher, what was your inspiration for writing this piece? And when did you realize that writing it the way you did would become necessary. You should have seen the first draft. Uh, we had a lot of help in, <laughs> in smoothing the corners, to say the least. Um, so we had a big company conference in Croatia the third week in May. And I was gone the two weeks before that. And so the week after, the, the second to last week in May, we, there was a call on the Friday afternoon at 4.52 with the editor-in-chief, Brandon, and I. And at the end of it, just in like a nonchalant way, he's like, in the next like month or two, you ever have any inspiration to do an industry article? Let me know because we're doing a little bit more there and maybe it would be something you want to do. So I just dismissed it. I was like, yeah, that's fine. And then it was honestly a matter of three to four hours later, um, the CFL game that I referenced in the article, that incident happened. We had the voiding after the win happened on Saturday. We had confusion around it and how the sports books were handling it going into Sunday. And by Sunday night, I was just irritated. I was like, you wanted an industry article? Here we go. And so Monday midday, I sent in the first draft. It took two days of the editing team to, to round, <laughs> round up my, uh, my word choices, I guess would be a good way to say it and, and make it into what it is now. So, um, it was honestly just a complete fluke that it happened, but I'm glad it did. And I'm glad we were able to publish it sort of on behalf of players everywhere, I would say. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty quick turnaround. And as I <laughs> went through the piece, I know naturally with you and the covers team, there's a bit of a Canada focus and this show caters probably more to U.S. viewers and listeners, although it's cool to see some Canadians and, and other international markets uh, really tune into the show as well from time to time. 
But is it fair to say that uh, for any players, as the article calls it, for, for betters out there, that this would apply to players in all jurisdictions across North America at essentially all levels in the betting spectrum? So I'll start with a disclaimer that I think people overlook. Um, our audience is 90% from the United States. And we are, as it stands right now, we're like a top 5,000, top 4,000 website in the world, any category, not just betting. Um, we've got 110 full-time employees and the editing team is 20, 30 people in total with the editorial. It's a, it's a massive website. Um, so the Canadian focus, I saw a couple people reference it, but like you said, this is something that I never like wrote as a Canadian specific piece. The one incident within there did apply to from a Canadian book and their stature within the Canadian marketplace is big given their TV sponsorship rights. But um, I wrote this as like everyone. There was no borders included because like you said, it's happening everywhere. Um, players are being, I would say, neglected um, is a good way to put it. Ignored could be taken to a further extent with some specific sports books. Um, in the piece I said, it, players are just turning into decimal points on the balance sheets at the end of it. And that's sort of the extent, not only of operators, but regulators and how they're treating betters within the industry. And so that's, um, it was intended for everyone for sure, because it's, it's happening all over. Yeah. And as you talk about this happening all over, I would love it if you could maybe break down a few of the standout examples highlighted in the article not just because of what the examples say, but also what might be even more revealing, how difficult or perhaps how easy it was for you to go about finding examples like the ones you touched on. Yeah, I mean, we see them every day on Twitter. I, since posting, have had dozens of direct messages from people saying I had this happen at this place. Or it, the, the fact is it's everywhere. And a lot of the examples I gave outside of the James Salinas one at Barstool in Colorado, where they printed his ticket that he requested to bet, didn't give it to him, went in the back, ended up moving the odds, offering it back to him at the different price for a fraction of what he requested. That scenario has been well published by the guys at VSIN. Brady Gill had him on the other day. Like it's it's pretty well known at this point. So that was one of the references. Um, because that really represents what happens to a lot of betters. And I referred to it as spooling. Um, it's the dreaded loading circle when you're in the app and you go to place a bet and it spins and it spins and it spins and it ultimately rejects what you were trying to bet, offers it back to you at a fraction of what you requested at different odds. It's, it's stealing information from betters. And in James's case, he was trying to bet $3,000, a lot of money to a lot of people, but we've had at covers and my DMs in other people at covers and their direct messages I mean, this happens to people betting as low as 20 or $30. We had somebody in the company, they tried to bet on a golf future. They got rejected and sent back to them for six bucks. Um, they were trying to bet $50 on the future. Um, so, I mean, this is happening everywhere to all different types of bettors. That was one of them. We had B-Win was referenced in the article. They had a covers player deposit $500. And he was not a long-term winner. He was an everyday player. He deposited the 500. He was immediately limited to a dollar and 34 cents per bet across the entire site. Um, and what happened was the deposit was attached to a one-time rollover 
they would not give him his money back until he rolled over the amount by betting $1.34 to a total of $500. It was 300 and some bets that he was forced to make. Um, there was a long dispute going back and forth. That was another example. The terms and conditions, the way that these sports books write them, especially around rollovers, bonuses, they're either enormous sheets, it's oddly worded, um, the examples with that are endless too for players that have been caught in different scenarios. Um, we had a, a situation where a number of us were betting on the draft and because something was tweeted out and a line moved significantly before it occurred, all the bets were voided because it was deemed to be public knowledge what the event outcome was before the event even started. So that sports book was SIA. They voided all the bets. Everyone was forced to get their money back. The event took place a few hours later. Um, so it was just a case of them getting caught, being slow to move a line. Uh, the bets were made before the information came out. So anyone who got bet before the tweet was out, anyone who bet after, this wasn't a case of people jumping on a bad line. This was anyone in the entire market. They had their bets voided, whether they were a part of it or not. And then, of course, there was the bet regal situation where bets were winning bets. The line was moved throughout the day. The book took action the entire day, acknowledged the line moves after the bets were made. Everything was paid out. The next day, they decided to void the bets, took the money out of everyone's account. And they're still right now in anywhere in Canada and in many states in the U.S., there is no protection for players around when sports books can void bets. I know I'm going on a tangent here, but this was just some of the examples that were included in the article. And again, like the point I want to really emphasize here for anyone listening is this is happening to everybody. This isn't a pros only situation like it was. This is everywhere and it's happening at all stages of betting. There's a lot to unpack there. Unfortunately, right. there a, are all long kinds answer. of examples. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's it's just the reality of the situation we're in. Something you touched on with James Salinas and then also the better who essentially had to bet more than 300 times just to recoup his initial deposit. The notion of disputes. I think you touched on that in the piece and people can kind of connect the dots, but I'd like to take this opportunity within this forum to see if we could have you peel back the curtain a little bit when it comes to disputes and how that ultimately works out or, or and oftentimes probably doesn't work out so well for the better involved. So I can speak for what's happening here, um, which, again, I live in Canada. I've not had the opportunity to go around to every single state, bet, and find myself in a situation where I need to file a dispute. Um, it's happened in a couple places. But here in Canada specifically, there is no player support for filing disputes. And I know in many U.S. states, that is in fact the same thing. Um, speaking on behalf of what I have heard and we have heard it covers from the uh, iGaming Ontario board, which is the regulatory board here in Canada, they are still in progress of determining how to set up a system to intake complaints and disputes from customers there's nothing in place and again as we hear these stories across all the states there's nothing in place there either it's really a, a very similar quite frankly to how things happen in the offshore world where your best chance to get something resolved as a player 
is to take it to somebody who has a voice in the industry. And there were a number of companies that built their way up in the offshore world to being sort of the go-between for players who had issues with these offshore sports books. Regulation was supposed to, in the eyes of many, bring that to the forefront and sort of take that away from being an issue. All these companies are here. They're all around us. We have the apps. All the banking is secured. It's great, but there's really nothing that is an advantage for players in a regulatory environment from being able to file and potentially win those disputes than there was in the offshore world. Um, nothing has changed in that regard. It's all benefited the operators. It just hasn't been anything put in place in so many states and provinces here in Canada that can help the player in any way. And so that's kind of unfortunate at this time. As you touch on where the lines might start to blur in the sense of what a better could experience from a regulated book versus an offshore book, I think of an example I heard from our mutual friend at Las Vegas, Chris. Shout out to Chris if he's watching this right now. An example that isn't featured in your article, but I think is still relevant to the type of situation we're discussing. Chris mentioned hearing stories of canceled futures so that books could get started within legal guidelines and just wondering how they could get away with staffing people and opening up, you know, the next day taking bets legally when they had just pretty much wiped out a lot of equity that their customers in the unregulated space had built up. You know, how does something like that stand when books are trying to make the leap from the black market or in Canada? I've heard people talk about going from the gray market into the regulated market. They were forced into it in order to take the leap, which was, I don't know. It's still a sore spot for a lot of people because there were many bets that were left hanging that, uh, and it was the timing of it too, right before the playoffs were starting. So all the hockey regular season futures, all the NBA regular season futures, a lot of other things too, were all looking very good. They were voided. The cash out options were removed from it. So then the books could void it. And it just kind of ended up being ignored by everybody. We tried to speak up at covers about it, but players were put in a bad spot. So anyone prior to April 4th who had a bet pending, which was the date of legalization here in Canada, uh, if they had a bet pending that was going to be settled after April 4th, it got voided at 12.01 a.m. on April 4th. Uh, a couple sports books kind of went out of their way to give solutions to the players, but a lot of them just didn't care. You have a place like Bet365, they have 4,000 plus employees. They even them who like they have the best tech behind their sports book in terms of their app and their offering. Uh, even they couldn't come up with something. And so it was, it was a, a bad spot and it's somehow now we're, we're two months removed and this is the first time it's been brought up in six or seven weeks here on the show because people just, it, it happened. The players had no recourse. They had to go through with it. If they wanted to continue playing, the books did whatever they wanted. And then a week later, everyone was back to playing and that was that. So it's um, it just kind of reflects what we were just talking about, where there's no recourse for the players to go when they have a dispute anywhere. They just kind of get ignored. This rekindles a memory for me of Five Dimes closing up shop in the summer of 2020. I believe it was uh, at some point, I think early on in the NFL season. And I yeah. knew some people at the same time, you know, the baseball season was going on a little bit later than usual because of, you know, 
pandemic-related delays to starting their season. And people had great futures on Tampa Bay. And the Rays ended up famously not winning the World Series in that game where Blake Snell got pulled. And that's a polarizing topic for another conversation. But they won the AL pennant. And a lot of people had good futures on Tampa, whether it's, um, you know, to win the pennant, to win the division, regular season win totals. And it was very murky as to how those were going to be graded. And I was on the other end of it where I realized, hey, the Blue Jays aren't going to be able to play any home games in Toronto. So with no true home games, I bet against them, essentially taking their regular season win total under. And I remember just counting down the days until five dimes went offline, just hoping that the Blue Jays (laughs) could wait to clinch my bet as a loser until after five dimes closed its doors. And uh, my bet ended up getting graded as a loser, and I can take it. It was a losing wager, and, and whether they went till the end of the season or you know five times pulled the plug when they did, it was not going to win. So I can deal with it. But for people on the other end with you know those really good Tampa Bay futures, instead of losing that equity, is it too complicated to ask from a tech standpoint, okay, once you reopen, if there are these books that are now going from unregulated to regulated status, once you reopen, it's essentially the same operation. Can you just rewrite those bets for people that had been fairly placed prior to, you know, knowing something had such strong equity, even if it's an off-market price at the time you reopen your book near the end of the NHL season? If somebody had, you know, a good ticket on the Avs or Tampa Bay or the Rangers who are still in it now, um, why not just rewrite those tickets to, you know, show show your customers a gesture of good faith versus just throwing up your hands and saying there's nothing you can do? Maybe I'm misunderstanding the technical limitations behind something like that. I don't think it was ever the lack of tech or resources, but what happened here specifically was that it was a government required regulation that was put into place. Um, We know that those are written hand in hand with operators. Mm -hmm. And so it was a financial issue where money that was placed outside of the legal market could not cross the line and become part of the the legal market. So it couldn't hop over April 4th. Any money that was placed before sort of was deemed ineligible to carry over into the regulated space post or past April 4th. Um, but again, it's a perfect example. And really like the main point of my article was not to bash a handful of sports books, because quite frankly, that's incredibly easy to do. I think it's just kind of getting lazy at this point. But like what I wanted to get from the article was when something like that happens, I know for a fact that there were a ton of thought and likely many conversations between regulators on how that could take place. And the sports books were notified late, but they were involved in that. If the player would have been involved in that discussion in any way or had their voice represented, It would have been viewed as a very bad thing for everybody. And then it seems to me, given how it's been spoken about, that the operators just kind of said, woe is me, and this is a burden for us too. Meanwhile, the regulators never had their voice represented into why it was happening ever. And so it's like there's a whole chunk of this conversation when something like that is decided that's missing, and that's the voice of the player because – it, it benefited nobody to have that happen. And it was just so set in stone that this was it. Those bets had to go away. I mean, we could have come up with a better solution. I'm sure. I'm, I'm certain of it because it's, it's just how it is, unfortunately. 
yeah, I understand the point that we can't necessarily have illegal bets just become legal overnight because an operator may be crossed over into the regulated market. But if I think of a book, you know, not one that's easy to criticize, but one that's easy to praise would be Circa and a lot of their practices. I would have to think that, you know, if they were in that sort of situation for any reason, they would find a way to make it right where, okay, you don't have to uh, maybe honor a bet that was made in an irregulated environment, but you could just rewrite it once you're regulated. And again, even if it's off market, if it's doing right by the player, that's kind of what you're advocating for here seems to be sorely missing across a lot of this space. But when you talk about bringing in the voice of the better, I think I've seen a lot of that and the response to this piece. And I'm wondering how you would describe the response that this article has gotten and how that might compare to what you expected before hitting publish. So, I mean, I, I guess I was expecting a lot more negativity than what was coming from it. And thinking about it now a week later, um, the positivity around it, I think, is reflective of how so many people are feeling about the topic. Um, what really stood out to me is I've had people who have hated everything that I've done for eight years, 10 years, whatever, and just always been criticizing things that I do reply or send a message or whatever and be like, that was a really good article. Um, and so that was what surprised me the most. But like, again, like you, if you read through the thread, there were a hundred, whatever replies to the tweet, like it got pretty big. Nobody really had, anything bad to say about the article. It was just more so on the tone of thank you for writing this. This needs to be out in the open. And I think that's important too. Um, it, it's a bit of a tricky situation for me because where I am right now, based off of this and things that I've said for years now, like it becomes really easy to just be the guy that hates everything about sports betting, hates all the operators, hates all the people involved. I don't think that's the way to progress either. Um, that would certainly be very easy. I think it would get a lot of clicks. People would appreciate it, but that doesn't make anything better. Nobody gets anything from that. We know that the operators don't treat players fairly in many cases. We know that the regulators are in it to support the operators and they have no way of taking in the customer voice. Bashing more of it's not going to change that. Um, I think it's a it's time we start trying to look forward and be like, where does this go and, and what can we do? And to that end, I mean, the, the title of the piece, where's the line from your point of view, where is that line and where do we go from here? I think it moves frequently and it's just continuing to progress further and further. Um, we've had for now, I would say, and you'd probably agree 12 to 18 months, this general kind of viewpoint that a lot of operators are taking anti-player stances in terms of how they speak about their companies to shareholders at annual meetings, calls, conferences, that that's sort of become common. Um, it then progressed, I would say, over the last year to where the spooling, the bet rejection, um, a lot of that has come into the forefront and sort of now been either understood or expected from players of all ranges. Like we just kind of has become part of it. So that, again, the line moved a little bit further. We're now getting into the stage where the handling of voids, 
how sports books are protecting themselves on very lopsided markets, how they're able to get away with mistakes where the player never is. A lot of that is now kind of on the fringe of, oh my God, this is happening. And I think we're soon going to sort of feel the same way about that as we are the other situations that have now become normal too. And so it's, it's continuing to progress further and get even worse for the player. I don't know where it ends, um, but hopefully just talking about it and now seeing networks like VSIN, you mentioned we're here on the show covers the massive website that it is, is now allowing me and others to post about it. There's now becoming this sort of wave of content and conversations and discussions against it being uplifted as well. So as it gets worse for the player, more people are now starting to talk about it. And I think that's a very good thing, but where it ultimately ends, I don't know. I just, it, the last four years in the U S it's continued to get worse and worse. And they're sort of seeing what they can get away with to an extent. And now we're really starting for the first time, starting to hear a lot of people talk about it. So it's, I think it has to keep going and get worse. Unfortunately. That's a very fair answer. And I'm going to follow up and push a little bit. Um, maybe, maybe the ultimate answer to this is beyond your pay grade or, or anybody's that we know. Uh, maybe it would require a lot of people really putting their heads together for a while and doing some hard work. But when I think about the awareness you mentioned, that's a positive in all this. And at the same time, if I think of the conventional sales funnel, you know, awareness is key. It's often the first step, but by itself, it can be insufficient for long-term real change. And you expressed, you know, some hope for this ultimately changing. And that makes me think of, you know, Jocko Willink. I think he has a quote, hope is not an action plan. So tying it all together, thinking about harnessing, you know, hope and awareness and the platforms that you and Beeson and others have, any thought as to how we can make sure this opportunity for necessary change doesn't die on the vine? It's been a hot topic the last few days, at least internally on our side. Um, the likelihood that across however many states are legal, 31, 32, whatever it is today, and what is it going to be in a month even more, uh, the likelihood that somebody is able to break through at every jurisdiction and impact real change that supports betters and includes that voice. And again, it, this isn't about just opening everything up for the better and making it great and erasing limits. That's not where it's going. It's about finding a fair middle. But the chance of someone implementing that at a government level across the board, I think is very unlikely. Um, we know what the motivations are there. We know that there's deals there and the revenue changing. That's going to be very difficult. Um, what we're sort of looking at internally is the best chance of progressing here and making an impact is through educating betters. And when it comes to reaching betters and speaking to them, nobody in the industry has a bigger platform than we do through annual traffic. And so we've been around since 1995. We've got a lot of connections with sports books, a lot of people within the industry, if we have these eyes coming through us, we can make it very clear on what betters should be accepting as fair treatment at these operators. And the fact is right now that there's so many of them that you really don't have to settle. We know, unfortunately, that the average user, we 
speak to tens of millions a year, uh, averages about between two and three sportsbook accounts that are active. And so when you're thinking that there's some states with 20 to 30, and that's the average answer, most people are playing at one, like it, there's options for choice. And so that's really, I think, where it needs to go. And people need to understand what they should be accepting as a player and approach operators and make their choice based on that. And as that grows, that will ultimately have an impact where the regulators and operators have most of their focus and that can potentially invoke change at a higher level. But it's, I don't think we're getting it from the top down here. It starts with all the players and, and knowing what's right, because as unfortunate as it is that sports books and regulators are treating players in the way that they are, uh, it's equally unfortunate that there's a lot of players that don't know better and think that this is in many ways normal or what's to be expected. And so there's both sides to it, as there is with everything we're discussing. I like the point about educating betters. I know that for, um, you know, betters who've been at this for a while, like you certainly, like myself and a lot of people doing this at a very high level, um, this might seem very easy to understand. But for probably 99% of betters out there, to your point, maybe this is normal or it's not alarming. And um, there, there's some education to be done in a way that's hopefully more informative than alarming. And at the same time, adding to the point about educating betters, as you were describing that answer, I thought about the regulators. And I kind of see a parallel to a lot of people in the content space who are, you know, there are a lot of very well-trained professional journalists on major networks or a lot of content creators who know how to get a lot of TikTok views or a big following on Twitter sure. and Instagram. And maybe they're not the sharpest when it comes to betting. And that's not their fault in any way. That maybe hasn't been their goal all along. And sometimes they're being asked to operate in a certain lane that is just really outside of their expertise. So yes, it's easy to point out when people say something on a big broadcast from a betting standpoint that makes no sense. To your point, I don't think the goal should be to tear that down, but to try to empathize and think, okay, where is that person coming from? Why are they being put in that position? And that gets me to thinking about the regulators in addition to betters getting some education, do you think there's any way to get education for regulators to help move this forward? Because right now, like they know where their bread's buttered and they're not going to deviate from that. Um, and at the same time, how could we expect them to if they don't know any better? Because day to day, they're not looking at this stuff anywhere near the level that people like you are. I had a very eloquent quote on this which is rare for me, but I forget exactly how I worded it. I would have loved to drop it on the podcast. Um, the answer to this and kind of how I see it, as I'll describe it, is the education level of the average better right now is low or low enough that they can't see through what is happening through content, through regulations, through sportsbook treatment, to determine what is right or wrong. They just don't know. And so when you say you like, wow, this video is getting a hundred thousand views on whatever platform it is. And it's complete nonsense. Like, how is this happening? It's happening because the average person watching it thinks that it's good. And there's some period of time that needs to occur to where that average level of education and understanding exceeds the ability to determine between what is good and bad content, what is good and bad sportsbook operator treatment, what is good and bad regulation. Um, I think we're still very early in that. 
And from the regulator standpoint, the experience level is the same as the betters. They just, they don't know yet. And I would even say that through various companies that I've had the experience of speaking with or knowing people that work there or knowing other people, a, a lot of the things that are being created within the sports betting industry, software, products, tools, whatever it might be, they're, they're hiring smart people on paper that fit the role and fit the job, but they don't come armed with that betting experience. And so a lot of what we're dealing with from the regulatory side, from the operator side, and to an extent, the content side right now is smart people put in those roles without betting experience, doing what they think is the right thing to do. Uh, a lot of these people are getting to conclusions they believe are correct because in the environment that they're put in, where they're working, that's what's being rewarded. And they're unable to see the industry as a whole. They're unable to see what's good or bad for betting, not the better, but betting as a whole and what actually is sustainable. They can't see it. So over time, the average person will be able to see through it. It's a matter of how long does everything last until that moment comes. But that's really the battle we're fighting kind of everywhere within the industry right now is so few people can see through it. But I believe every day that number, that percentage of people that can increases. And once it gets to a certain threshold, then a lot of that stuff goes away because you just demand something else. As you talk about the battle that you and others in the space are fighting right now, I wonder about a dynamic of, you know, it could be possibly advertisers with the site light covers if there's any conflict there or knowing that DraftKings owns VEASAN and for now there don't seem to be you know any big limitations seeing the way guys like James and, and Gil and others have spoken pretty freely seeing what you're doing um, it, it seems like you're empowered to speak your mind and do what you think is right and over time do you think that there could be any potential friction when it comes to ownership or advertisers or how does that dynamic play out in your mind as you project this over the long run uh we're in a fortunate spot and i'm very happy to be a part of it to where our ownership group is very anti-advertisements they're putting the user first they're all about having the best experience and so when you visit covers when you're reading any article when you're looking through any of the tools or the pages within it there is no longer any advertisement on the site. And uh, that was about a year ago this time that the last of the ads that were paid ads were removed from the website. And so being as big of a company as we are and as big of a website as we are and how we continue to grow, we're fortunate to have that as the case. And so nothing on covers is a paid advertisement. And within what we're promoting and what we're publishing, um, none of that is paid for either. And so while we're able to do something like what I posted is because we are as big as we are and we want to take the stance of the player. And so I think it was something in the past for the site that grew it into why it was so big. There were parts in the middle throughout the 2000s and 2010s where that was uh, a little bit of a different case, but now we're in a scenario where it's all about the player. And I think the team that we have, is in the right spot and we all align on the same things where we can continue pushing forward. So in terms of conflict for us, 
Um, that's not going to be an issue. We're going to do what's best for the player. Um, certainly as long as, as I'm there and able to create content, and I know many people on the team feel the same. So that's um, on our side. In terms of other companies, I think it's always an issue. I don't think other places are in as fortunate of a situation as we are. So I understand why you see some of these networks unwilling to talk about it or they're unable to or whatever the case might be. Um, but I think a nice first step with that was how VSIN handled the issue with James, what they let me say on the segment with Mitch and Polly. But I think back to Gill's incident with, I think it was Swatek at the French Open a year or two ago. Um, he had the other Will Hill issue uh, with the draft props. That was now probably three or four years ago. So they're they're willing to let people speak about it. Hopefully it becomes um, more. But again, I think part of it too is like I've been saying, it's so easy to just bash sports books all day. And it's not just an issue that is them deciding to do this. It's It's both sides and it goes a little bit deeper than that. And that's kind of become the norm for a lot of people. And so I think as we start to be able to have conversations that look forward and not just hanging certain companies out to dry, it may be welcomed a little more too. And as we step aside from that blame game that a lot of people can be, you know, very easily uh, looped into when it comes to pointing the finger at certain books, zooming out from that, but just thinking about the dynamic, you've touched on it earlier in this conversation. And I thought about it while I read the article regulated books versus offshore books. I'm wondering if practices like what we're seeing now might ultimately prolong or even increase the viability of offshores or on the flip side, getting out of my own bubble where I am as a better, if most betters are still just content to bet wherever it's legal, because that's what's more comfortable for them. How do you see the current practices affecting the regulated versus the offshore dynamic in the betting landscape? I'm not sure that it ever went away or I've ever seen concrete numbers that said that that side of it in terms of local bookmakers, the offshore bookmakers, I don't believe that ever disappeared. And it kind of depends on the conversation where um, some folks genuinely believe it's gone away, maybe because we're no longer talking about it as much and it's not the only thing to talk about. But I mean, it's still very alive and very real. Um, whether or not this is enough to drive people back to only play at some specific offshores, I don't know if that's the case. Um, maybe for a small portion of people, it could be. Um, the The fact is that the one thing that these regulated companies have is convenience. Um, why they've not fully pushed that out yet or taken advantage of it, in my opinion, is is a bit unusual or a bit misguided um, because that's really the the big benefit that they have. But in in terms of saying like the the best regulated bookmakers, the experience you're having with them, I would say is arguably better than some of the best offshore books that you're dealing with. Um, it's really when you get down to like the middle and the bottom, you really see that separation start to happen. But in saying everything that I've said, it's not like a full endorsement to go play offshore. I don't think that's necessarily the case either. Because to say there's not issues there um, just isn't true. But um, it's not like this magical experience you have when you play it. <laughs> Whatever offshore bookmaker you want to have. So I don't think that it shifts anything. I think the problems and the issues that are shifting behavior um, go well beyond just some of the issues that we're mentioning. 
one more question for you on this topic, then we'll move on to a couple other quick hitters before we wrap sure. things up. If we look forward six months or a year, I know if anything, the past few years has taught us the future is next to impossible to predict. But what would you hope the impact would be of this story and of, of this kind of movement six to 12 months down the road? Hope is not an action plan, Matt. We can't there we hope go. is not right, an so action plan. So what will you what what do you hope to see and what will you do to ensure that there's some reality behind that as well? <laughs> I don't believe anything changes in the next six months. I doubt anything changes in the next year. Um, we'll use the word hope again. I would hope, speaking for Ontario specifically, that within the next year, there is something put in place where players can submit evidence of dispute or wrongdoing from a sports book or regulators or anything, and they can just start hearing about it. Now, a lot of it's going to be complete BS because players think that at the slightest issue they have within anything that they're doing, that it's a massive conspiracy against them. Um, so there's a huge task at hand for them. But just opening the door to communication from players, I think, would be a massive first step. Um, in terms of that happening within such a short time frame, I don't think that's going to be the case, but if I'm hoping for something, that would be it. Um, if we're looking even further than that, maybe the next couple of football seasons, my hope would be that there is clear regulation written that supports both the operator and player and doesn't put the only emphasis or ownership on the house rules that are dictated by the player around the open posting of limits, uh, the handling of bet acceptance and clear rules around voids. And then in like an all time hope scenario that there would be some sort of minimum stake established that is universal within a jurisdiction that all sports books have to meet. They can control the high end, but in simple terms, if a bet is up and it's available for betting on an app or a site, the book has to take X amount of dollars from the player, anybody, no matter how they're profiled on that market. So there's that minimum that they would have to accept and then they can control the limits on the high end. That's completely up to the operator. That differentiates the business. Regulation should not impact business model nor innovation, but I think there needs to be that fair line where if something is up, you've got to take a bet on it and you've got to honor it. So if we can get those three things in place over the next three, four, five football seasons, we're in a much better place than we are now. When you talk about universal minimums within a jurisdiction, my first thought is, you know, on NFL Sunday, right before kickoff, we're talking about one level of efficiency in the marketplace, something like the NFL draft, the whole other end of the spectrum. So do you think this would be a universal minimum that would need to be specified to certain bet types and certain betting markets? Or do you think just across the board, if a bet is up at any book within a jurisdiction, you can get down at least X amount, knowing that if it's universal across the board, it's probably going to be a low number, but one that at least people can count on getting down nevertheless. When you get into altering the number, it becomes very difficult to write a concrete regulation around that. Um, so in an ideal scenario, again, where I'm going with this is it's two-sided. If we were to say that it was like, if we're fully advocating for the player here, it's like, okay, X amount of dollars across the board, any offering, 
pick a number, 500 bucks, hypothetically. Anyone can bet $500 across the board on anything that's posted. If that's the case, then sportsbooks are going to get killed when it comes to props and derivatives. If you're getting 500 blind on props and maybe you're multi-accounting, whatever it might be to get, like people are going to exploit that to the end of the earth. So like, that's not fair for the operator. Again, the regulation has to be in the middle. And so I think the only way that you find something in the middle that fits here and not end up Australia, France um, have put something similar in place. I think the way that Canada and the United States need to go based on the sports we're primarily betting is that minimum stake needs to be a percentage of the handle written on that bet type per sport. And so Every all this betting data is public. I think the data needs to decide what that number is. And that data in many cases needs to be transparent so it can kind of be seen from both sides. So it has to be a number that is fair for players. We can't go on in this world where you're going on an NFL Sunday and you're getting 18 bucks on a side three hours before kickoff. It makes no sense. But at the same time, we can't get to some huge amount where you can bet obscure props that are mispriced and just kill sports books from that side of it, too. So it, it can't be something that restricts the offering that the sports books are providing the players, but it can't be something that provides the, prevents the players from being involved within those offerings. So it's a big question that needs a lot of work, but the data is there and there is sure as hell a lot of it that can decide what percentage of that stake based on handle and proportion of what that represents annually to the sports book that can decide what that number is. I'll back up a few minutes and say, I like your time horizon spoken in terms of football seasons. A few times you mentioned over the next couple of football seasons. (laughs) There we go. And to that end, if we look at what's next from a content standpoint for you and covers.com, I know you also co-host or excuse me, you host by yourself, the Simple Handicap Podcast. Uh, what's your NFL offseason content pipeline looking like these days? Uh, a lot of this now, <laughs> quite honestly. It's taken a big shift. Um, I can say the podcast will be back in its usual form for the fourth NFL season. I Fourth or fifth, I've lost count now. So that'll be there. I can't say yet what is going on for the NFL content specifically that I'll be involved with on covers. Um, We're waiting for one more signature and then a press release will go out sometime this month. Um, I believe it will be the best content plan and staff involved put together for an NFL season ever. That's my take on it. Um, So people have to wait to see what's going on with that. And then, um, Until then, I've been sitting on a book now for three years, and it's continuously grown and grown and grown. And it's really hard to find a style editor to make it not sound like something I'm speaking about, but actually make it um, written. And so I'm trying to find the right person to do that, to hopefully have that out at the end of August. But that has been a challenge that I've been dealing with for like, 18 months now it just hasn't hasn't worked out to where it sounds like it's right so that's kind of my next couple months leading up to football 
how would you describe the book? What can you reveal at this stage? Uh, using my experiences to hopefully save people from making the same mistakes that I did. Got it. All right. Well, we'll, I think you'll have a, a lot of eager readers once that sees the light of day. And then I know you're waiting on a signature and a press release for the content plan. Um, without naming any names, I, I know that there were a lot of great betters that you brought on board for content with covers last season. Um, would it be fair for people to anticipate some familiar faces as part of the content plan for this upcoming season? Two of them, yes. Uh, three would be new faces. Got it. Okay. Well, I will keep my eyes peeled as will I'm sure plenty of others and beyond all the content, uh, just as a better and handicapper yourself. I mean, the host of the simple handicap, any updates on the status of your NFL prep with the season getting closer with each passing day. It's been a lot less intensive than years past. Um, probably first week in July, I'll really get going with it. But um, I'll be like once this past football season was the most of anything that I've done from a content standpoint, from a work standpoint, and then even from a betting standpoint, almost volume wise, uh, most I've done in many, many years. And so by by the time we got to end of February, I was cooked. Um, and then I did a lot with the draft too, which took me to the end of April. And then we went straight into a couple of weeks of travel. There was, and, and so it's like, I honestly feel like the season ended like a week ago, because even though the season's been over the last, what's it been like three months have just been constant moving somewhere. And so really now into June's like the first time I've ever slowed down since the end of the season. So once we get into like early July, I'll start coming out with previews and going through my usual paces and things like that. Um, but just a couple little bets here and there on some stuff. Other than that, it's been really quiet, which is kind of nice. Um, I did like virtually no prep last year and had a very good season off of that, keeping it really simple. So uh, we'll see, but haven't done a lot yet. I think you led us very well into the Molinsky minute. And in this conversation, I think about Dave's perspective and how he was never really prisoner to any one game or bet or news item of the day. And I'm wondering with everything that you just outlined that you've had going on, even during the NFL offseason, how do you go about balancing everything from handicapping to monitoring the industry to other walks of life without getting overly fixated on any one topic? Oh, I don't. I'm terrible at it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, it just, the tricky, I guess it's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time where what I do now for work daily, working with the awesome team it covers is essentially what I do for life every day. And so the lines between when I'm actually doing something and when I'm not relating to sports and betting are very, very, very blurry. There is no, I'm waking up at this hour and I'm stopping at this hour and I'm doing something else. It just doesn't happen. And so I would say that from like a mental occupancy standpoint, it's just constant. As long as I'm awake, there's some sort of thought or anything on it. Um, 
and it's it's just what I like to do and what I'm interested in. So it never really seems like something that needs to be balanced. It just always happens. Now, a couple of years from now, I might be dead because of it, but we'll see what happens. So far, so good in that regard. And it's just like, I don't know. I just kind of go with it. And then if I ever want to take a break, I go golfing or whatever. But it's it never stops. There's no balance. And when you do take those breaks from time to time, in addition to golf, I know you can enjoy a good beer or two to take off the edge. So let's also take this opportunity to weave in the hops. And Adam, I'm curious, as we're a few months into the NFL offseason, how would you describe the best and worst beers that you've had since Super Sunday? Okay, so we'll leave the Bud Light Lime conversation that took over Twitter a few weekends ago off to the side. Um, So there was three weeks of travel. So I was in Nice with my wife for a week, uh, which is now number two in all time places visited power rankings for me. May even be one if we take bias out. I loved it. Um, there, within the, the coast and the weather and the atmosphere, just a classic Cronenberg, but in the, like the cold, frosty mugs was phenomenal and they had the the blanc version the white version which was just during the day was exceptional and then from that went into croatia for a work conference we had the whole company down there in croatia for a week and presentations and stuff and so i wish i remembered what the first beer we tried was um it was in this giant i knew it was trouble when it's like as incredibly hot it's like 4 p.m we get to the hotel the company has two five-star hotels booked off for us and so like the staff is there to serve it was an incredible time and i knew it was trouble because we got there after a full day of traveling it was a disaster and the waiter comes out and we ordered two beers and the two beers are like mini wine bottles and they're corked and for me any time that a beer comes with a cork it's trouble and so I don't know what it was, but it was like drinking maple syrup and it was heavy and it was supposed to be some sort of lager. We had one and I mean, I was spinning from it. And from from the next six nights, we although they tried to serve that because it was some special something, uh, we got into Ojuiscos. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but it's this little green bottle. It was kind of lager traditional lager style um and it was it was really really good but it's again as we've said on a couple episodes i've been on like that was the local everyday beer that was there and i swear every beer company that has their local beer within different countries has it done right to where it tastes really good in that country at that time and if you would have that anywhere else it would be awful but it was, again, it was one of those beers um, that just worked. And I'm going to find the one I had in in Italy because that was very good too, as was everything. And and specifically, that was Bira Moretti. I've got the, the picture on the phone. And they would, I mean, the food niece in that whole region was phenomenal. It's right next to the border. But they would pour it out of these super cold kegs and you get this little glass it was just brilliant so i would say that between ojuisco and moretti uh those would be the two best and whatever that brown one was in croatia was the worst 
I, right, I always I, bring it for these answers. I'm sure it's extensive, but it work, it's good timing. Yes, I always appreciate the way that you weave in time and place. So it's not just what you're drinking, but when yeah, and where and in what company. That's all a part of the experience. And that, so. was, that was the Bud Light Lime comment that people could not understand. And there were people replying on Twitter. The thing got 220,000 impressions between Rob and I talking about Bud Light Lime. But people were like, how do you know what patio tastes like? Because I referred to it as the taste of patio in the summer with the sun on your face and i'm like it's not that you're tasting it physically it's the feeling of drinking it in a certain spot and i don't know how anyone can speak badly about a bud light lime in the sun after walking 18 holes of golf in the heat it's just the, it's phenomenal but that's time and place is incredibly important when you're drinking something you're really tempting me when you say you don't know how somebody can speak badly about a Bud Light <laughs> line. But then with the context you added, you won me back over uh, again, something I try to really hold near and dear. There's a time and place for every beer. And yes. I'll give you a little bit of food for thought uh, with my own beer adventures this NFL offseason. Let uh, me have not it. as wide ranging as your experience. Actually, in the same flight I had at Pure Project, which is a San Diego brewery. I was at their Carlsbad tasting room a few weeks ago. I'll, I'll start with the bad. The worst beer I can recall having in the last few months would be a beer of theirs called La Vie en Rosé. It's a Saison with honey and hibiscus, 6.5% ABV. I really like Saisons, and I, I don't mind something a little floral. So when I saw you know the hibiscus, I was like, okay, let's give this a shot. Was really overpowered by the wine character. And that's oh. really on me more than Pure Project. Rosé is in the name. So that's not in my wheelhouse. If you do like wine, if you like saisons, it's probably very well made and it is as advertised, but it just didn't sit right with me. So fortunately, one of the next beers up again in that same flight. Hold on. What is a hibiscus? Yeah. Is that a, that is in hand cream, is it not? Uh, let's see. Oh, we're pulling up Google to get into this. We're, we're, we're you lost me. You said hibiscus, you lost your rosé. Yeah. I lost it at hibiscus. Yeah, there we go. Uh, hibiscus. According to Wikipedia, so we know it's accurate, uh, a genus of flowering plants in the Malo family. Yeah, uh, some some kind of plant. Uh, I hear hibiscus with a beer and I think, okay, it should make it a little bit floral, which sometimes can be really good. Um, sometimes, I guess, not so much. <laughs> well, is, is hop hops or barley would not be considered flowers correct uh correct uh, hops are hops are a plant uh, i mean they're in the right. cannabis family so even some hops have you know people describe them as dank or, or a lot like marijuana so they're all kind of related in some way but yeah i wouldn't i wouldn't often say floral although some hops because they are plants depending on how and where they're grown might give off a bit of a floral presence so i know we're we're way out of bud light lime territory here but, so it's but it's fair to say that if we were to make the statement here on the podcast to keep flowers out of beer, but plants are okay, that would be acceptable to describe this experience. I think so. In my case, the the hibiscus wasn't the issue. It was the rosé, again, right in the title of the beer that I completely overlooked because I saw Saison and hibiscus and I was in and wine just is not in my wheelhouse, unfortunately. Uh, all right. And then the best? All right. So the best in the same flight. It was called Enchiridion, and I had to look up that word a few times. I hadn't seen it, but I, I think it has some British origin. Basically, uh, I'll leave the name aside and get to the beer, because this was an imperial stout 
13.7% ABV. You would not have known it with a couple of sips. It's a blend of one, two, and three-year-old bourbon barrel-aged stouts. And it was just barrel character to the max. You could get notes of bourbon and oak, also some chocolate and vanilla. Really silky body with a decadent mouthfeel. And what interested me about this beer was all those notes. There were no adjuncts. A lot of imperial stouts that are popular these days, breweries will actually add chocolate or vanilla or coconut or other popular ingredients. And that's totally cool. But for a pure project to achieve this kind of flavor without adding any of those adjuncts, it's just what they brought out of the beer naturally. I think that's a really good example of a pure bourbon barrel aged stout at its best by pure project. So if I'm going to bash them a little bit, even though it was more my fault for La Via and Rosé, really want to give them accolades for that Imperial Stout. Again, uh, if people want to look it up, Enchiridion is the name of it, Pure Project. If you try to spell that even phonetically on Untapped, I'm sure it'll pop up. Now, hold on. I have questions here, too. Um, Bring it. When it's So it's can you tell the difference when something is naturally taken from, I would assume, the brewing process or whether it was put in a barrel or something. You can tell the difference between that and then flavor that's artificially infused. Oftentimes, I think so. I won't claim to be, you know, bulletproof when it comes to this, but one of the key distinctions, I would say, would be a term that Dave Malinsky would use if he had a beer that was too overpowering. He would call it cloying, uh, C-L-O-Y-I-N-G, cloying. And it's just so sweet. It tends to really wear on your palate. And if something like chocolate or vanilla is added separate from the, let's call it the more natural brewing process, then maybe it's going to be a bit stronger. So it's very noticeable and some people really like that flavor, but if it's too noticeable, it can almost throw the beer out of balance versus this stout that Pure Project did just relying on barrel aging and, and their own more natural process. Nothing came through in an overpowering sense. It just kind of all played very well together, if that makes any okay. sense. I, I have another California one for you on this sure. topic of interesting flavors. When you go, you know, the Sculpin IPA from Ballast? Yes, Ballast Point. Where is that power rated in your all-time list? So this question for craft beer fans, I, I think a lot of people, you know, I'm from San Diego where Ballast Point is headquartered. Five years ago, probably a different answer. They were acquired at a certain point by Constellation. And as they scaled up their operation, um, people with sharper palates than I do, with more experience with Sculpin IPA, would say that something changed at a certain point. And when Ballast Point was independent, not cranking out a ton of Sculpin, it was up at or near the very top. Right now, I think people have become, again, kind of like people like to criticize sports books for practices that they don't agree with, and that's just too easy to do at times. I think people have taken that route with Ballast Point and said, oh, you know, they sold out, they made too much of it, they threw off the recipe, and it's just not as good as it once was. I think it's still a really good beer. I don't have enough experience to say definitively. It used to be a 10 out of 10, and now it's a 4 out of 10. I think that's pretty severe. Um, I think if somebody were to give me that right now, if I were at a party and, and that was a beer that somebody hosting it would have on hand, I would consider that, you know, really high end relative to what a lot of people might expect in a, a more general setting like that. So that's grapefruit, right? Am I getting my beers mixed up? Ballast Point has put a lot of different fruits with Sculpin. I think there's just Sculpin IPA. I, I've heard of like watermelon Sculpin, grapefruit Sculpin. Okay. So there are a lot of variations of it. If we're to make a parallel to derivatives in the betting market, let's say it has sure. many of its own derivatives, but even just straight up Sculpin IPA, I think there are a lot of 
you know, citrusy notes. And it would be fair just with a, a plain old sculpin to say that you're picking up on some grapefruit. Because that was where I was going with it. Like in my head, I was trying to think of flavor infused into beer. And then mm-hmm. on that level, I'm guessing that that is not artificially flavored for how good it is. That's derived from the brewing process and the hops chosen, right? Yeah. So similar to what we were talking about with stouts and things like chocolate or vanilla that yeah. sometimes can come from barrel aging or just the way the beer is naturally made with IPAs, some breweries will make an IPA and they'll add orange zest or, or something like that. Or sometimes they'll add like a pineapple puree. Other times <laughs> I know a lot of hops like Citro, Mosaic, Galaxy are very popular right now. You can get a lot of those flavors without actually having the fruit added. It's just part of you know, the beauty of putting hops and the other ingredients together in a way that is, you know, more pure in the eyes of some. Again, like you mentioned with the stouts, I think if if orange or pineapple is added late in the process, just the straight up fruit gets added, you'll pick up on it right away very clearly. And some people really like that. And I tend to prefer when I can get those notes from the hops themselves, but nothing's dominating anything else. And when it's all just the hops doing the talking with the yeast and the malt, um, and the, you know, just the, the more classic ingredients, um, you can kind of get the full spectrum and, and it's, it's a more fun journey that way. But yeah, if Sculpin, the grapefruit or watermelon edition are coming out, that's just adding a lot of that specific fruit later on in the process. So it's going to be unmistakably clear once you take a sip, what's been added to that beer. I like it. I'm into it. This was a good segment. Yeah. Have you had your uh, chance to get much Sculpin? I, I know that it used to be tougher to get, but one of the benefits of ballast point selling was that they did get to widen their distribution pretty significantly. So do you ever see that in your neck of the woods or do you look out for it at certain travel destinations? When I was in Vancouver, they had everything because everyone there is like, if it's not whatever aged for X amount of time, I don't want to drink that beer. And so it's just like breweries and places and everything all over the place. Now where I am in a very small town of a couple thousand people in the middle of rural Alberta, when I walk into the liquor store freezer, there's a wall of Coors Light, a wall of Bud Light, then a wall of Coors, a wall of Budweiser, and then like hard alcohol and stuff like that with a couple different local brewery stuff from Calgary, which is the biggest city I'm near to. But in terms of anything being imported, the extent of what I see would be like Guinness and Modelo. Other than that, it's just there's nothing here. So I don't have access to it anymore. I I don't see it or anything. But I know when I was when I was in Vancouver, like I, I mean, every single day you could be drinking a different beer for two or three years consecutively. You would never run out. Like it was just endless, and it's just there's there's so many. Yeah, but it was, I remember the main ones were Sculpin and I think Kona was the other one, but it was like mm-hmm. Hawaii, California. I don't know the, the mix in that, but that was big. And then there was a uh, one from Portland. Um, they've got the big restaurant in Portland too. Um, downtown is the big restaurant brewery. Um, the shoots, I think it was. Oh, Oh, Dish- Oh, actually I'm going to be probably at Deschutes in a few days here. They're in Bend, Oregon. And uh, yeah, so just, Portland is a little more coastal. Bend is smack in the middle of the state. Um, but yeah, Deschutes is in Bend, and I'm going to see my best friend up there in just a few days. So uh, yeah, if you have any thoughts on that, I can make sure to uh, maybe send you a photo and and help you experience a little bit vicariously. 
I I couldn't remember what I was drinking specifically. I probably would have went lager as I always do. But um, I, I Portland is criminally underrated. I know there's weird shit that goes on all over the place, but <laughs> for just enjoyment of like food and drink, yeah, I feel like it never gets enough respect. Like that was uh, I was there for a couple nights and it was just terrific everywhere you went into. Yeah, well, I'm spoiled here because one of the better breweries in Portland is called Great Notion. Not sure if you're familiar with them. Um, They do a lot of, they call it like culinary inspired sours, but also a lot with IPAs. And they do some stuff on the lighter side as well for, you know, if you're looking for some lager. And as a- For us unsophisticated folk, you mean. (laughs) I I, I would say, you know what, something, especially over the past couple of years, being home more, if if I'm going to, you know, watch a movie and- you know, stop working and I'm still up for a few hours. I don't want to be knocked out after one or two beers as good as a big stout or double IPA can be. Sometimes just being able to throw back a few lagers is the way to go. So you're not cutting your drinking session to 30 minutes and then you're out of it. So there's something to be said for being able to optimize volume while keeping your wits about you. You're, you're playing to the audience I'm bringing over to the show. Well, and, and it's really something I've experienced more firsthand myself. When I got into craft beer in like 2016, 2017, hazy IPAs were just taking off. And it's crazy to have hazy double IPAs, triple IPAs. We're getting into double digit ABVs and they're smooth as can be. They're delicious, but you put away one and a half cans and you're wondering what just happened to you. Done. And yeah. And now, you know, being home more just in a setting where, okay, if I want to have like a session that doesn't get cut off in 30, 45 minutes, Pace myself, have some loggers. <laughs> Even out here, breweries are doing hoppy loggers. I don't know if you've heard of this, but like Highland Park and Green Cheek are some breweries in Southern California. They will put a little bit of hops in their loggers so you can get some of those, you know, citrusy tropical notes, but it's going to be more in the 5% ABV range instead of the 7% of your standard IPA with those same hops. It's like training wheels for a pint of beer. <laughs> I think it gets the job done. So, yeah, I don't know how we got here. I thought the hops part was going to be like one minute. Should have started with this. We, people would have stuck around. I know. And next time we should just do a, we'll just call it the hops and hops episode next time around for maybe round five. Uh, if we can do it when football hasn't taken over our lives altogether. I'm in. Anytime. All right. All right. I will hold you to it. Well, Adam, I want to be sure before we wrap things up all together to plug your work so people can know where they can follow you if they're not doing so already on Twitter at Adam Chernoff. Of course, all the great work you're doing with the team at covers.com. And I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to your must-read article. Again, the title for people listening is Where's the Line? Sports Betting Regulators Need to Act Now to Protect the Player. Also the host of the podcast, The Simple Handicap, a daily staple throughout the NFL season. We learned in this conversation, you've got a book in the works. Anything else I'm missing or anything you'd like to add? No, some would say that you've already done too much. So we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, I would like to take a moment as well to thank everybody for watching and listening to this conversation. If you've enjoyed it, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to take just a few seconds, leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you're catching this in podcast form, feel free to join us moving forward live on Twitter and YouTube. You can be first in line to get top-notch insights from top-notch guests like Adam And you can also add your own thoughts or questions to the conversations as you see fit. To do that, you can go ahead and follow me on Twitter at mlandis18 or follow the show on YouTube via the link in the show notes. Adam, once again, thank you for your time and for fighting the good fight. 
Just don't let it interfere too much with your time on the golf course. I know you've got to get rejuvenated for the captivating NFL season to come. And I see that orange golf bag right in the corner of your room. So I hope you can put it to good use shortly here. What a read to end the show. That was phenomenal. Thanks for having me on.